You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Close yet so far. <laughs> Good morning, Mill Creek. My name is Nathan Eberlein. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and that's page 932 on the Bibles in the back of the chairs. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from our church. Uh, last week, Pastor Jeremy uh, gave us an introduction about this letter from Paul to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, and that sets us up for what we're about to read in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about, wh- about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can gather here today um, and share the good news of Jesus. Uh, Lord, Please uh, let your spirit rest upon this place. Uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to learn uh, changes to be more like Jesus. Please be with Jeremy. Uh, please help him to speak truth and to do so powerfully, truthfully. Um, please help us all to adhere to sound doctrine and be pleasing to you in how we live our lives. And thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathan grateful for Nathan's service on the elder board, co-elder chair. You know, one of the most dangerous viruses that humans have faced in our history is called smallpox. If you don't believe me, you can go Google that thing later, not now, and you would find that it is like top five deadliest viruses ever doing a little homework on that, come to find out smallpox was fatal to 30% of the people who contracted it. And in the 20th century, estimated 300 million people died because of smallpox. And yet here we are, 2023, and scientists have concluded smallpox isn't a thing anymore. I mean, just out of curiosity, how many of you have had it? How many of you have had smallpox? Nope. Last known outbreak, 1949, United States, which means you haven't had it. You probably don't know anybody that's had it. If you do have it, the World Health Organization is going to be real mad at you for not reporting it. (laughs) Uh, Smallpox, 
so deadly. But now there's a few viruses left in some labs across the world. Scientists will use those things to study it and learn some stuff. But it is no longer a, a problem. It's no longer a deadly disease that humans are worried about. But what if one of those scientists is clumsy, gets them on their jacket, goes home, and their kid gets smallpox? What if all of a sudden we find ourselves in a terrible dilemma where smallpox is spreading rapidly, the virus is catching hold, and many of us begin to get sick, and we see 30% fatalities. What had been not even a concern for us previously would all of a sudden become deadly. Now, forgive me if this like dystopian novel plot is troubling to you or if you already have a thing about having to wash your hands too much and now you're like, I gotta leave right now and wash my hands because this is kind of freaking me out a little bit. I, I am not concerned about smallpox. I don't think you should be concerned about smallpox. But the reason I bring this idea up is because just because we don't really concern ourselves with smallpox does not mean it is not deadly if contracted. Just because we're not concerned about it doesn't lessen how fatal it used to be. And I find smallpox to our population a fitting parallel to false doctrine in the church. See, here's what I mean. If, if you grew up at Mill Creek, or if you've been here for a long time, maybe you were here before I showed up in 2015, you may be thinking to yourself, false doctrine in the church is about as concerning to me as contracting smallpox tomorrow. Because best you can tell, and, and, and as I've looked at the meeting notes, there just hasn't been a big outbreak of false teaching that's happening from this pulpit or in Sunday schools at Mill Creek. And so if you've, if you've been around here for a while, you may not be very concerned about false teaching, and I think you would be right. And yet, even though we may not be experiencing false teaching day in and day out in our church context, like a dormant disease, false doctrine can rear its ugly head at any time, and if it gets you, you will get sick. And left untreated, false doctrine can not only make you terribly sick spiritually, but it can become fatal. Ignoring false doctrine is deadly. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to know in our text today. Ignoring false doctrine is deadly. Now, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, hey man, I'm just kind of a guest to Mill Creek this morning, so if this hasn't been historically a very big problem, why would you spend a whole Sunday on that topic, and of course the answer is that the way we do sermons here is we pick a book of the Bible, and whatever comes up next, whatever the main idea of that section is, is the main idea of the sermon. We just conclude that God knows best what he wants his people to hear, and so we preach it, and we'll let him decide in glory um, uh, what, was, what he wanted for us. So, so this morning, as we walk through our section of verses 3 to 11, my goal, what I want to convince you of is ignoring false doctrine is deadly. And the way I want to do that is by answering three questions. 
If you're uh, a note taker, I'd love for you to write these three questions down. We're going to walk through the scripture and answer them. It's going to be who should be confronted. Secondly, we're going to answer how is the law supposed to be taught? And then finally, what safeguards should a church put in place in view of this? And that's where we're going. Who, how, what? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open up to 1 Timothy? So you can see, I didn't just go to work thinking, here, let's talk about false doctrine this week. But that is indeed the big idea of this section. Let's jump into our first question. Who must be confronted? Who must be confronted? Look there in verse 3 as we see what Paul is telling Timothy. He writes, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul's alerting Timothy, I understand that in your church, Timothy, are these persons who are not teaching the gospel that Jesus taught me and I have taught you. We talked about this last week. If you weren't here, you want to hit our podcast, it may be helpful. But because Paul was an apostle of God, verse 1, by command of God, or I should say an apostle of Jesus by command of God, Paul's words had authority. And what Paul's saying to Timothy and everybody listening is, you have to got to confront these false teachers who are devoted to, verse 4, myths and endless genealogies. These persons are teaching speculative doctrines. And in God's blueprint, God doesn't want us spending our time in Sunday school classes or life groups speculating about faith. God wants us to understand that salvation is by faith. And those are two very different things, right? <laughs> Speculating and hypothesizing, hmm, maybe this is the way it works. Yeah, I've kind of wondered that. And versus, no, 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 <laughs> this is how it works. Salvation is by faith in God. So Paul's saying, Timothy, you've got to confront him. See, here's, here's what I think is going on. We don't know for sure, but this is, this is my best take. In that church where I understand Timothy to be pastoring, there were teachers who were leading Sunday school classes, who were leading life groups, doing midweek student ministry, and instead of speaking what God has said, preaching the text, uh, teaching the text, instead of staying on the line of the text, these guys were going above or below the line. I've mentioned that before in sermons. If that's new for you, the, the idea is that when you stand up and try to teach or preach God's word, there is a line of scripture. There is a line, and the temptation Every time you look at the text is to either add and go above the line or subtract from the text and go below. And there's a bunch of churches out there who take the Bible and then tack on a bunch of rules to it. That's going above the line. And then there's a bunch of churches out there who, have a, who, who see the line of the scripture and then they tell you God didn't really mean that you have to follow that line. And the temptation's always going above or below and that's what these guys are guilty of. That's what these teachers are doing speculating and hypothesizing on all sorts of details that have nothing to do with faith in God. See, if you're unfamiliar with the main message of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all about how faith in God will credit you righteousness. And these guys had thought that the Old Testament was all about how you follow the rules, the Ten Commandments, so to speak, and that's how you're righteous. But if you go to Genesis 3.15, where God promises Eve that one of your 
offspring will crush the head of the serpent. The question becomes, Adam and Eve, do you believe God's promise to you? Or if you go to Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham is told that you're going to have offspring, more than the stars in the sky. The text says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abraham wasn't righteous because he followed all the rules. Abraham was righteous because he believed the promises of God. And that's the way righteousness operates for Christians. Righteousness is never earned. Righteousness is a gift credited to those who believe God's promises. And in Ephesus, they were getting this whole thing backwards. They had naive teachers talking about family trees and myths leading the church, verse 6, into vain discussions. Verse 7, teaching that the Old Testament law, or teaching the Old Testament law wrongly, excuse me. In fact, you can see it there in verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Oh, those teachers had confidence, but they were just wrong. Which is why Paul's saying, Clearly, hey, Timothy, God has a blueprint for how to do church. And in God's blueprint, you have to confront false teachers. You have to confront them. And that's the answer then to our first question if you're taking notes. Who must be confronted? Answer false teachers. Now, I should say here that there is a difference between the kind of false teacher Paul means and the kind of false teacher that I often think of. Um, See, Uh, It used to be that late night on TV, you would turn the channel and you could find one of these teachers who seems like a real sleazy dirtbag just telling you to give him money and if you do, God's going to bless you with some like lottery ticket later in the week, just out of the blue. You give me $10, God will give you $1,000. You sow a seed, he'll give you a harvest. And, And while those would be false teachers culturally, the kind of false teachers that Paul's aiming at here are not sleazy used car salesman type guys who who know the gospel and frankly reject it. See, because kind of the false teacher I'm thinking of, if you pumped them full of truth serum and said, do you believe in salvation by faith alone? They'd go, no. And you say, what are you doing? I'm trying to make money off suckers. That's what I'm trying to do. While those people are false teachers, that's not the kind of person Paul's got in mind here. Instead, what Paul has in mind are people in the church who are ignorant, naive, and need correction. Not people that have to be church disciplined immediately. Now, if they don't change, they'll have to be. But, but, but Paul thinks there's a chance for Timothy to actually confront them and that these guys and gals would repent and then teach properly. See, it's, see I became a youth pastor in 2004, right? Elementary education and being a special ed teacher for a couple years, I, I got into youth ministry. And, and, and I preached some really bizarre sermons. And um, if you ever find a website devoted to the bizarre sermons I taught as a youth pastor, would you just please delete that thing? Because that stuff is embarrassing. Um, and I, um, frankly, I was naive. I was uh, untrained. I was an idiot. That's what I was. <laughs> but I stood up in front of a bunch of teenagers and I taught sermons that Muslims and Jews would have been happy to listen to because I rarely got to Jesus for a while. And, and, and while my teaching at early in my career was dangerous, I wasn't, 
I wasn't trying intentionally to teach false doctrine. I was just confused, and I needed correction. That's the kind of false teacher Paul has in mind here. Somebody who needs help. Not somebody who's opposed to the gospel, but somebody who could be improved upon. And I say that because I want to be sure we know who Paul has in mind. And and look, I hope this first section then is clarifying that as we see Paul's command to confront false teachers, Paul is telling him, it's not confront every false teacher in the city, it's just those in the church, and Paul's also saying, hey, Timothy, you're the one to confront, just in case anybody in here is thinking to themselves, man, that annoying person in my small group who's always going on that doctrinal soapbox I disagree with, I was getting ready to give them what for after this sermon. That's, this thing is to Timothy, not necessarily you, but that is the principle, who must be confronted, answer false teachers. It's especially for false teachers using the law wrongly, which brings us to the second question that want to make sure we're clear on how is the Old Testament law supposed to be taught? Move with me to verse 8 through 11 where Paul answers this. There in verse 8, we read from Paul that the law is good. If you use the law lawfully, that is to mean if you use the law rightly. Now again, we touched on this, but I want to make sure you get it. The Mosaic law, we could say like the Ten Commandments is an abbreviated subset of the law. The, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic law was never intended to justify a person. Okay? If, if for some reason you walked into this worship service thinking, the Ten Commandments is how I am justified, you are massively misinformed. That's not the way you use it. But that was the way those false teachers were using it. Here's the Ten Commandments, and if you would just follow them, then God would see you as righteous. Uh, Also, there's some myths and genealogical family tree garbage, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, the law makes you righteous, and that is not the way you use the law rightly. See, instead of the law making you righteous, the law is to reveal your need for righteousness. I mean, have you read the Ten Commandments? I mean, you read those things and you go, man, I... I violated that or the spirit of that. I mean, my guess is we've all violated each of the commandments or the spirit of the commandments. Or think about Matthew 5 where Jesus gets up and basically does a a sermon on the Ten Commandments and he makes the requirements even more strict. You read that sermon on the mount from Matthew 5 to 7 and you walk out with your shoulders up and feel like, yeah, I'm feeling great about my righteousness. You didn't read it right. (laughs) No, the purpose of the law is to show us how far we fall. And there between verses 8 and 10 then, do you notice all of those descriptions that Paul gives in the text? Excuse me, verse 9. The law is not for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. I mean, he is just like hammering these people Don't you use the law to make yourself feel good. The law shows you how awful you are. And in fact, those descriptions in verse 8 to 10, I'm convinced Paul is mapping each one of those off the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you want to nerd out, between verses 8 and the beginning of 9, I see Paul referencing the Ten Commandments 1 through 5. And then the second half of 9, all the way to the end of 10, are commandments 6 through 10. 
I think what Paul's doing is helping the Ephesian church know the law is not what makes you righteous. In fact, let me give you modern examples in the church, Ephesus, in which you are violating the Ten Commandments. And of course, the problem was that you had people teach in Sunday school. Maybe it had the title, Come, learn how the Ten Commandments can make you righteous. And to the person leading that Sunday school class, when they hear this letter read, they're kind of you know, hiding their eyes like, oh dear, I'm way off. Well, it answers our question. How is the Mosaic Law to be taught? Answer, rightly. You've got to teach it rightly. In fact, the way you teach it rightly, verse 11, is to make sure that the law accords to the gospel. If you're new to us and you don't know the relationship between the law and the gospel, I hope you'll stick around so you can understand how they work together. The law reveals our need for righteousness and the gospel brings the message of righteousness. You don't preach law, you don't have a need for the gospel. If you only preach law, you have no hope. You preach neither law or gospel, well, you're not Christian. Got to teach the Mosaic law rightly. But now, having walked through our text, again, my guess is there may be some Mill Creekers here who are like, Psh, I need this sermon about as much as I need a smallpox vaccination. <laughs> Why are we doing this? But I'll tell you what, there may be some guests here who have sat under false doctrine. And if you've ever experienced false doctrine, like a smallpox survivor, you have scars and pain. And while I'm grateful that Mill Creek hasn't had these false doctrines to the level that Timothy is experiencing, we've got to be careful about it because false doctrine really is deadly. And you let some of it creep up and it can take over. And at the end of the day, it'll not only hurt, it can destroy. So then what safeguards do we need at a church like Mill Creek? Well, that brings us to our third question. I want to walk us through some safeguards that are necessary if we're going to protect correct doctrine. Here in this third section, then, is our application portion of this sermon. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write these down. Here's the first one. First takeaway from this text, you need to realize how deadly false doctrine is. You need to realize how deadly false doctrine is. Just like those scientists in some lab with smallpox, man, don't be messing around with that smallpox virus. That stuff killed lots and lots of people in the history of the world. So it is with false doctrine. You've got to realize how deadly false doctrine is. And Paul's made a big deal of it. And because Paul's making a big deal of it in this letter, we are too. In fact, Paul's talking about it right at the beginning of his letter. As he's explaining to Timothy, here's the blueprint there are seven pillars or seven buttresses. That's the support that makes a wall so much stronger. In my count, there are seven pillars that, that Paul says are critical for a healthy church. And this is the first one. You have to have correct doctrine. And in fact, not only is correct doctrine important at the beginning of this letter, if you track closely, it's coming up in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He'll come back to it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There's a second letter to Timothy called 2 Timothy. It's coming up then again. False doctrine is really important to Paul 
because he knows how deadly it is. We must realize the same. Because here's the truth. Church, if we ignore false doctrine, it will ultimately be fatal. The sermon in a sentence, ignoring false doctrine is deadly. That's safeguard number one. Realize how deadly false doctrine is. Here's the second one. Be careful not to swerve into false doctrine. We see that word swerve there in our text, verse six. See, here's, here's, a, here's the way it seems to me, church. Every day, we are bombarded with messages of false doctrine. It's messages we hear on social media, messages that Hollywood is streaming into our house, messages from YouTube and online, corporately, individually, different organizations, Amazon, Google, they all believe in doctrine. And I realize we don't often think of it in those terms, but it is true. Everyone in our world has an operating worldview that they are trying to champion. And out of the million messages you and I are hearing every single day, nearly every single one of them is false. Parents, we better be careful what our kids are watching and how we want to debrief the latest Disney movie that tells them for the millionth time, you're really good. Everything about your insides is good and all you have to do is follow yourself to be true to yourself and that's how you have the good life. That is false doctrine. And that message is killing our kids and it is killing teenage girls especially. We gotta be careful then not to swerve in the false doctrine because these kinds of messaging, it permeates entertainment and advertising and our relationships. And it can happen not only individually, but it can happen corporately. So we have to be on guard in all of these ways not to swerve. See, well-meaning churches can all of a sudden trade from prioritizing the line of scripture to trying to create some experience. And I don't have any allergic reaction to churches that have high production value and light and fog. And that's all fine if that's the kind of community you're trying to reach. But if you do a high production level and you ignore getting the scripture correct, you're swerving. You're swerving. Or there's preachers out there who stand up to preach a message and they have concluded all of my people already know the gospel. All of the people here, they already get Jesus, so I'm just going to assume the gospel. I'm gonna assume everybody's a Christian, and I'm gonna teach about the deeper things of God. But that's not, that's not the way Paul writes to Timothy. He tells Timothy the gospel is for non-believers and the gospel's for believers. The gospel's not just how you get in the church, it's how you live as a church. And in these ways, just a slight, a slight degree shift has massive implications down the road. And the antidote then is the way to avoid swerving into false doctrine is you gotta get back to God's blueprint for how to do church. See, I don't know where all of you are gonna be in a year, in a decade, 
Whether you're at Mill Creek or whether you go to a different church in Kansas City or whether you move, my, my hope for you is if you go to a church and you're trying to figure out, is this the kind of church for me? The question would be not how culturally hip are they, but are they actually following the blueprint of the Bible? There's like a million cultural fads that churches can jump onto, but that's not what drives us. This is supposed to drive us. So we don't want to swerve into false doctrine. You swerve out of your lane with false doctrine, and like the interstate, it can be fatal. So realize how deadly false doctrine is. Be careful not to swerve. Here's takeaway number three. Self-evaluate your teaching. Self-evaluate your teaching. I'd love for you to write that down if you're taking notes. Now, just in case you're sitting here thinking, is there some secret group of false teachers that, that Jeremy's passively, aggressively speaking to this morning? <laughs> Are the elders, like, concerned about some guerrilla warfare out there, and he's going to point them out and say, aha, we caught you. That's not the case. Now, truth is, there's, there's uh, the elders and I have... Uh, zero names of people that we think are false teachers in our church. So this isn't, this isn't some secret message to passively aggressive address false teachers. And yet, while there's nobody that we're aiming for, there are lots of teaching opportunities that the elders aren't in the room for. Um, right now, we have a wonderful group of volunteers who are teaching kids about Jesus. And our family ministry team does a great job teaching on Sunday mornings, and they do a great job on Wednesday nights with our student ministry. And, and many of you are those people who are teaching, and yet there are times when you are teaching our kids, and we're not in the room with you. You're by yourself, or it's just you and a couple other people. And, and what I'm wanting to ask you to consider, those of you in those roles, you may think, ah, but it's just third graders. Baloney. That is the gospel. And those are our kids. And we want you to cut the gospel straight for them and it be as serious with them as you would if you were teaching the whole church. And so whether you're teaching in third grade or teaching middle school, maybe you're a life group leader for a high school group. Maybe you've got some guys that you hang out with over coffee. Maybe you're just texting a friend who's struggling with Jesus. We don't often think of all of those categories as teaching, but they are. Moms and dads, the way you answer your kid when they say, do I have to read the Bible for God to be pleased with me? That's teaching. And what I'm wanting you to do is to self-evaluate. Are you teaching that righteousness is found through obedience to God's law? Or are you teaching righteousness is only found in faith in Jesus Christ. Because those are two different belief systems. And I want us to be the kind of place that is known from the littlest of our people to the oldest saints here. This church teaches righteousness by faith. And one way to do that then is for you to self-evaluate. Is that my message? Am I teaching righteousness is by faith alone? 
that the message of salvation is there is no other name under heaven and earth by which you can be saved except for Jesus Christ. And that all of the scriptures ultimately is about God's glory. See, if you're not sure if you're actually teaching the right gospel, you need to get some gospel bearings. And God's glory can do that. See, if you look in the scripture, 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, you see Paul saying, the glorious gospel of God, which is to say the whole point of our life is God's glory. If you didn't know that, that's worth the price of admission right there. This whole thing, your life, who, what, when, where, why, all of your life is about to be about making much of God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us as much. You were created, I was created, the whole point of a worship service, discipleship, the gospel, Christ's death on the cross, all of it's for God's glory. In fact, it sounds like a great mission statement for a church, if you ask me. It should be all about God's glory. That's what it's all about. You were created for God's glory, to make much of Him. However, what happened was, you and I quit pointing to God's glory, and we tried to make a big deal of us. I mean, God's good, yeah, but have you seen me lately? <laughs> and in all these different ways, then, we are glory robbers. And like Adam and Eve, instead of honoring God's glory, instead of living for his glory, we have lived for self-glory. And in so doing, we have fallen short of God's glory. Paul tells us that in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And now we have a great problem. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is righteousness in Christ Jesus. We were made for his glory. We fall short of his glory. We deserve death. But God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. If you're not sure if you're teaching true doctrine, get your gospel bearings. Get your glory of God bearings. This is how the message works. And if, any, if you've failed in any of these ways, if you've swerved from the gospel, if you've ignored how deadly false doctrine is, if you're teaching doctrine wrongly, or whatever else you may be convicted of, know this. The gospel's for you too. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what you've done, right now, confess. You would be forgiven. These three safeguards then for our church I'd love all of you to be able to practice them. There is one last safeguard, and this one is for Mill Creek elders particularly. I look around, I see a few of our elders. Maybe there's a few of you in here who aspire to be elders. Feel free to lean in. But primarily, this is for Mill Creek elders. Men, we must confront false teachers. Elders, while other safeguards are important, this may be the most crucial for long-term health here. For God's blueprint, blueprint is clear, ignoring false doctrine is deadly. Elders, we must not take the chicken exit, though it is tempting, 
to choose comfort over confrontation. It's far too easy to hear, oh, that person's teaching this, but uh, just, that'll be a really hard conversation. I don't think I'll do it. We must not take the chicken exit. Elders, we must not take the bully exit either and hammer people who are genuinely ignorant and need correction and pretend like they're some awful, motivated, false teacher fleecing our flock. We can't be chickens, and we can't be bullies and drill sergeants either. I'm so grateful that when I was a young pastor, somebody put their arm around me and corrected me the right way. See, the gospel, elders, it's not only what we believe doctrinally, it also informs how we behave. See, if a person gets confronted for false doctrine, the dream would be that they would say, man, the elders had to confront me about some false doctrine, and that, that was hard, but they were loving. Those men loved me in that conversation. See, elders, you know, far too often I, I can preach salvation is by grace alone, but the way I actually talk to people can feel void of grace. So we can't be chickens, we can't be bullies, but we must be vigilant to confront false teaching. Men, will it be easy? No. No, that's not, we're not doing this because it's easy. And will it be fun to confront false teaching? Elders, it will not be fun. But that's not why you became an elder, right? I mean, if you wanted to have fun, you should have bought a boat. <laughs> no, eldering is difficult, demanding, and unending work. And most of the time, it is suffering, not joy. But if we do our job, not only will Mill Creek be protected from deadly doctrine, but one day, when we stand before God in glory, and it's our turn to account for how we did this. Elders, we're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the God of the universe, and I hope we can high-five one another and say, best we knew, we protected them from false doctrine. And it was painful, but that's the path to glory, isn't it? Look at Christ. The path to glory always goes through suffering. See, Jesus, he came, he confronted, and he suffered so that those with faith in him might be made righteous. Elders, may we preach this message and protect this flock from false teachers. Church, here's my last thought. It's hard work to try to honor the gospel and protect, false, protect the church from false doctrine and to do that lovingly and kindly. And we would love your prayers I think our elder board means well, but we are sinners just like everybody else, and so we would be so grateful if you'd pray for us. Would you pray for us that we'd have the courage to do what Christ calls us to do, that we would have the kindness to do it the right way, not be chickens, not be bullies? Would you pray for this church that it would be protected from false doctrine? In fact, let's do that now as we close. Let's pray together these things. God, we are grateful for your word and I pray you would protect Mill Creek from false doctrine and I pray you'd help our elders to 
fulfill the role they're called to fulfill. Neither be chickens nor bullies, but honor you. And I pray we wouldn't ignore false doctrine. And for our people, that they would, spirit, that they would know righteousness is by faith alone. Now, God, these are large tasks, but we pray you would provide what you require. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.